Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Her friends called her beloved and irreplaceable. Co-workers said of the death of 35-year-old Christina Yuna Lee, Our hearts are broken. Another senseless and horrific crime in our city. Another Asian-American victim, leaving that community reeling. I mean, what we're hearing and what we're seeing, right, this is not an isolated incident. We're seeing over and over again that there is a rise in violence towards Asian-Americans. Whether we classify it as a hate crime or not, we cannot erase the fact that two-thirds of the attacks have been towards Asian-American women. Christina Yuna Lee was brutally murdered in her sixth-floor walk-up apartment on Christie Street in Chinatown. A homeless man who followed her into the building early that morning was arrested and charged with stabbing her 40 times. A month earlier, Michelle Goh was murdered by another homeless man who pushed her in front of a moving subway in the Times Square station. This week on 880 In-Depth, Violent attacks against Asian Americans are on the rise, just part of an overall rise in hate crime in our city. What is at play and what is being done to stop it? One thing that we have to look at is is, uh, historically um, that people tend to commit crimes um, in a lot of different circumstances. One of them being like when people are frustrated, um, when people are bored, um, when people have a lot of other stressors going on in their life and they take it out onto others. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Steve Scott. You can hear the pain in the voices of community leaders like Terrence Park, head of the Asian American Voters Alliance. We want protection. We want safety. We want it now. Park, just one of the leaders at a rally against Asian hate crime days after Christina Unilee's murder. Julie Wan is a New York City council member who represents communities in Western Queens. Our Peter Haskell spoke to her this week about the rise in crime. I mean, what we're hearing and what we're seeing, right, this is not an isolated incident. We're seeing over and over again that there is a rise in violence towards Asian Americans. Whether we classify it as a hate crime or not, we cannot erase the fact that two-thirds of the attacks have been towards Asian American women. So we can't erase the gender violence of this, nor could we erase the ethnicity or the race of the individuals that are being slaughtered or harassed or assaulted in any way. What's going on? Why do you think this is happening? Well, it's multiple layers, right? Uh, We saw an increase in racism 
towards Asian Americans during the pandemic, especially when we had leadership in the government who were calling this the Kung flu, the Chinese virus, which continued to inflame the economic difficulties that everyone was facing. And then we have the influx of homelessness, as well as mental illness, substance abuse. And it's kind of the perfect storm where we're seeing violence erupt in our city in all different ways. And they tend to be targeting the most vulnerable, which are Asian women and Asian seniors in our city. What should the city do? What should the police department be doing? So we, when we were standing here the other day with um, with the original press conference the morning of the murder, we heard from the borough president that within the last 10 years, we actually saw homeless, um, not home, like, uh, we saw mental hospices be shut down instead of being opened or being increased in funding. Because what we're seeing over and over again in the patterns of the perpetrator is that they have a pattern of being homeless. They also have patterns of mental illness, like proven mental illnesses as well as substance abuse that have not been treated in the way that would help them get better and they are in our streets and it's a very complicated issue but we need to make sure that we're having real investments in long-term solutions because it's just not it's just not realistic for us to think that as an asian american woman who's living in fear that i'm going to have a personal bodyguard or a police officer with me at all times it's not sensible and it's not realistic and that's not going to keep me safe. But what we can do is make sure that we are being, we're foreseeing the avalanche to come. The eviction moratorium has ended. And now with the bottleneck in the courts, within the next three to six months, we're going to see from the housing courts, there's only going to be an influx of more homelessness and more substance abuse as well as more mental illnesses in our streets and in our public, and our public safety will continue to be at risk. City Council Member Julie Wan. We also spent time this week with Kevin Nadal, distinguished professor at the City University of New York, where he teaches forensic psychology. Peter Haskell began the interview this way. We have seen this spike in anti-Asian hate crime last year, continuing into this year. What's going on? Yeah, you know, since 2020 and the start of the pandemic, there's been a lot of anti-Asian sentiment that was started uh, in the media and especially by government leaders um, because of uh, the uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 originating in Wuhan, China. Um, and so with that sentiment, um, it led to a lot of uh, these um, various forms of violence um, that started to increase exponentially from 2020 to 2021. Um, and we started to see, especially in 2021, um, acts of violence targeting specifically Asian American elderly folks, um, and especially in uh, metropolitan areas. Um, but starting in March 2021, um, there was started to become this attack on Asian American women. Um, and we know about uh, the six Asian women who were killed in Atlanta in these uh, shooting sprees. Um, and more recently, um, two Asian American women murdered in New York City um, in different consequences or, or contexts and with different consequences, different um, uh, you know situations. Uh, but um, it's, it's made a lot of Asian American people, especially Asian American women, really scared for their lives um, because of wondering if they're going to be the next ones that will be targeted. 
You talk about these different crimes in different places. Are there similarities between the perpetrators of these crimes? You know, across the um, the general, uh, you know, reports of looking at anti-Asian violence, um, you know, it'll say that there are lots of different perpetrators of crime. Um, generally speaking, a lot of these um, instances involve uh, white Americans, um, but some of these more high-profile cases are involving people with mental illness, um, many who happen to be black or black American, um, and so there's a, you know, intersectionality there and some um, some complicated uh, issues to discuss as a result of that. Um, so when um, these crimes are committed by white people, there's the idea of um, understanding white supremacy and, and systemic oppression. When these crimes are committed by people of color with mental illness, um, that we have to understand things like um, the impact of our mental health system, um, as well as some of these racial dynamics uh, that are Still a product of white supremacy in which certain groups might, um, you know, lash out onto other racial groups um, and understanding how, um, you know, this might be uh, something that is still learned um, from these biases uh, that are taught across all systems. You know, it's interesting to talk about the, the attacks on Asian Americans, which we want to focus on, but in New York City, hate crime was up 100% last year across the board. So what are the intersecting factors? What are the differing factors that that we've got it across the board, but specifically up more than 300% against Asian Americans? Right. I'm glad you pointed that out, that hate crimes against people in general um, have increased uh, in the past couple of years. Um, And I think, you know, one thing that we have to look at is, is uh, historically um, that people tend to commit crimes um, in a lot of different circumstances. One of them being like when people are frustrated, um, when people are bored, um, when people have a lot of other stressors going on in their life and they take it out onto others. And so if we, if we just remember that as a general um, trend that happens uh, for people uh, and then intersecting that with the pandemic um, in which people were getting sick, people were losing family members and loved ones, um, people were losing their jobs or, um, you know, not having enough money to pay rent and suffering from economic hardships, um, in addition uh, to, you know, maybe having these racial biases and so forth. And so people are committing crimes against each other, um, perhaps because they're frustrated, perhaps because they were bored, perhaps because um, they are lashing out um, on other groups who they deemed to be um, either vulnerable or disposable or some combination of, of those things and other things. Um, and so when we, we look at um, Asian Americans specifically, you know, we have to see that there was a correlation um, with the anti-Asian sentiment um, that started um, in early 2020 um, when the then president of the United States um, started to refer to this as the China virus or other um, racial slurs um, that people started to, you know, resent Asian Americans and take it out on them. And, you know, this is something that we've seen historically, that this had happened in the 1800s and the 1900s when Asian people started migrating to the country in um, larger numbers. Uh, We saw this sentiment 
sentiment increase um, after 9-11 when um, government leaders and others were fixated on, um, you know, uh, promoting these uh, Islamophobic or anti-Muslim biases um, that then led to the increased hate crimes of Muslim people. So it's, uh, it's, you know, a lot of of, uh, uh, of ways in which we see um, the the after effects of this uh, people in power, um, systemic oppression, then you know trickling down into this uh, interpersonal violence um, between uh, two people, um, and, and again targeting folks who who are often viewed as either vulnerable or disposable. You know, I want to ask you about that in terms of this this. Uh cultural perception, perhaps. Do do you think Asian Americans are seen as easy targets? And and do you think Asian Americans might be less likely to report crimes than other people? Yeah, so to to answer your question, I mean, I think one of the things that is is really um, uh, uh, prevalent or at least, uh, you know, observable is that you know, there are certain types of Asian people that are being targeted. They're not targeting, you know, these six feet tall Asian American men um, who maybe they view as, um, you know, being stronger, able to defend themselves. Um, they're targeting elderly people who are oftentimes, you know, walking more slowly or using canes and walkers. Um, and then they're, ta- they're targeting these women. Um, again, you know, women who might be uh, smaller in frame and who they feel can, you know, uh, can, they can tar- uh, target or victimize more easily, um, and so I, I think in general there's this notion that um, that they can have some control over them and that they can you know blame them for their problems. Um, and you know the second question about whether or not Asian Americans uh, report crime, there has been plenty of research over the past 30 years uh, that has demonstrated that Asian Americans tend to seek help uh, the least amongst uh, all racial. Um, and that can, can um, include help uh, with uh, when they're targeted or victimized by crime. Um, it also includes help when it, it comes to things like mental health services um, that they tend to, um, to to internalize, you know, problems, issues, um, even uh, situations, um, and not uh, you know seek proper help. Um, when when needed, um, which you know might also mean that even though there has been this 300 percent um, increase in crimes against Asian American, perhaps it's even more because um, they're just not being reported. What 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 should cops do about this? Two things: being one, can you prevent this kind of thing? And assuming you can't, how do you police it? How do you deal with this? You know, um, you know, I have a lot of complicated views of police officers, especially someone who had worked um, as a consultant and trainer for the police for for eight years. Um, but I think, you know, in your 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 question, you know, you already posed a big part of it is that um, a big part of the answer, which is um, that they really can't do a lot um, to prevent this from happening. Right? Police um, usually show up after the crime had already happened. 
um, having increased police um, in the subways uh, did not prevent Michelle Goh from being pushed into the subway tracks. Right. Um, maybe they were there to respond to the incident, incident, but they weren't there. They weren't able to prevent that from happening. Um, so I think that one of the things um, that is really important to um, really emphasize and reemphasize is that increased police presence um, is not going to prevent uh, these crimes from occurring. Um, I think that when police are involved, um, if, if, uh, if there can be uh, something they can do is that they can be more helpful in reporting these crimes. Um, being more able to provide, uh, you know, these uh, culturally competent, linguistically competent um, services um, when people want to uh, report crimes, because oftentimes that's a big barrier for non-English speaking um, people who are targeted or people where English is their second language. Um, but the police in general, you know, aren't going to prevent these things from happening. Um, instead, um, what, what I, and along with a lot of other community leaders and scholars, are, are really big proponents of um, is putting money into the communities themselves, um, helping or letting communities decide um, how they want to spend uh, their money that might help prevent some of these things from happening. Um, as an example, funding Asian American organizations um, who can create things like escort programs um, so that people can be escorted um, while they uh, go shopping, especially elderly folks, um, or that they can have somebody do their shopping for them. Um, services that might uh, be able to uh, uh, allow uh, Asian American people, especially women, LGBTQ folks, um, if they don't feel safe, can somebody escort them in, in going home? Um, you know, another thing that might help in the long run, but certainly might not see the effects in the short term, um, is just increased education about Asian Americans. A lot of people were very unaware um, and uneducated about the history of Asian Americans in the United States. Um, when this increase um, in, in hate crimes occurred uh, in 2020 and 2021, most people have not been aware of the increase or, or the hate crimes that occurred in, in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, nor even about, you know, the, the hate crimes after 9-11. Um, and so, you know, I think having uh, Asian American educational programs, having people be really um, able to uh, learn about how their biases impact uh, others um, can be something that we teach kids in school from an early age um, so that, you know, when they do become older, uh, that they can, um, you know, learn how to manage those biases, understand that those biases are all part of this greater systemic oppression, um, and, and maybe that can help in preventing some of the crime. Um, and then just as a last piece, I mean, I think one thing that's important to acknowledge, um, but also not, um, you know, to, to view as the main problem of this, is that there, there could be some mental health components um, from the perpetrators of these events. Um, and, uh, and I say that because, you know, I, I don't want to say that people with mental illness uh, commit hate crimes because they don't. Majority of uh, people with mental illness and even severe mental illness are nonviolent, um, no more violent. Um, than the, the population of folks who do not suffer from mental illness. Um, however, for those who do have mental illness and who do commit crimes, um, what types of services were provided for them um, that might have caught 
uh, some of these violent tendencies earlier on, right? We're still learning more about the Michelle Goh case and the Christina Yuna Lee case. Um, but it appears that, you know, some of these um, perpetrators had been in and out of mental health facilities, um, you know, were suffering from schizophrenia, um, where where were the systems in that? How how might um, them getting proper services have prevented um, any of these things from happening? Um, so I think that's also something that's really important um, for us to, to attempt to digest because, um, you know, having done, like I mentioned, I worked with NYPD for eight years doing mental health training on how to work with people with schizophrenia. One of the things that... Um, that we know is that people with schizophrenia, um, even if police try to help them or if they go to, uh, you know, the hospitals, they're usually in and out um, and they're not really getting the proper services that they need. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, we're, we're just uh, maintaining the status quo. And, um, and now we see that that status quo includes the uh, victimization and the targeting of um, violence towards Asian American people. How do we change that in, in two critical pieces? Do we have the, the funding and do we have the wherewithal to try to change things? It, it seems like this is a, a tall order. It is a tall order, but it's possible. There just has to be some rearranging of figuring out what is deemed um, more uh, valuable versus what is not deemed valuable. You know, we spend so many, so much money on certain aspects of policing um, that can be reallocated towards something else. Um, for example, there have been plenty of programs that have emerged um, in the past even five years of, of certain um, jurisdictions where when people suffer from mental illness, um, the cops aren't called. Instead, uh, they call these um, mental health uh um, what do they call them? Mental health responders um, who are able to show up to situations, de-escalate the situation, provide that person with resources they need. They even have their own vans or ambulances um, who can take them um, to uh, you know institutions where they might be able to get services. Um, the amount of money that is spent um, on police who are not trained as mental health practitioners um, to show up in those instances. Um, um, oftentimes leading to unnecessarily unnecessary violence um, or unnecessary trauma um, to people involved, um, you know, maybe that money needs to be reallocated um, in, in certain ways. You know, I, I, I look at just, you know, some of the ways that um, money is spent um, in general in our government, whether it be with the military or whether it be um, for programs that aren't shown to be effective. Um, and then we have some of these uh, programs that either um, are effective or that we won't know if they're effective because there's never been enough money to allocate um, to see if they're effective. Um, and so, you know, it is a tall order, but I think that's where true leadership comes in um, to try to figure out if there's something else that's going to work um, because policing isn't the answer um, for a lot of things. In fact, maybe even most things, um, but that's where we keep throwing our money towards um, when in fact they might not be um, the most effective, neither um, or nor the most um, uh, trained or proficient um, in being able to handle certain situations. Kevin Nadal has strong feelings about the role of police in helping stem the rise in hate crime and specifically crimes against Asian Americans in New York. But he also has deep concerns. 
Speaking of police, the head of the NYPD's Hate Crimes Task Force has been reassigned. The city claims it's part of a normal change, but there have been reports that the person in charge was insensitive at, at you know, to put it perhaps charitably, uh, in dealing with victims. And so I'm, I'm curious, what concerns, if any, does that raise for you? And how do you think the NYPD is doing with hate crime? That's a great question. Um, like I said, I'd worked with them for many years before I decided uh, that I could no longer work with them as an organization. Um, but um, I, I think this is one example of, of just uh, how these programs might not necessarily be effective um, and how people who lead these programs might not be uh, properly trained or even um, uh, qualified uh, to lead these programs. Um, and so, you know, if you think about it, right, having a hate crimes task force generally could be a positive thing. Um, but who's going to lead that? Do they have uh, leaders in their department who have been trained in mental health awareness, have been trained in um, critical race theory, which I know is a really hot topic right now that people don't want to know about, but perhaps that person has a, a knowledge of the history of Asian Americans um, here in the United States. Perhaps that person um, has some ability to, uh, to to speak with people in interpersonal ways um, in which they uh, can, you know, make uh, victims or survivors uh, feel safe, feel validated, feel like they can um, turn to police officers. You know, one of the things that I've studied in the past is this idea of trust um, in the system, sometimes we call this procedural justice, this idea of whether or not the criminal justice system um, is uh, fair, equitable, and serving of your communities. Um, and for so many historically marginalized communities, whether it's uh, racial communities, uh, pe um, black people, Latino people, Latinx people, Asian American people, um, or even um, LGBTQ communities, or even women, um, that uh, they might not feel safe reporting because uh, the people uh, in the department um, might not be sensitive to them, might not um, even uh, be able to validate their concerns or listen to them. And in some cases, with some of my research and other people's research has found, um, even re-traumatize them. So imagine being um, a person who was victimized or targeted by a crime and then going to try to report it, and then the police officer is there or the person at the, the desk um, commits a microaggression towards you or makes you feel like it was your fault in some way. Um, that's not effective if that's what police are meant to be, is uh, serving the people. Um, and so, you know, having the programs isn't going to be um, helpful if, if the people running the programs aren't even qualified or if there isn't that proper training. Um, and then the second part of your question is, how do I think the NYPD is doing? Um, I. You know, I think they're 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 doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, um, and that is that these systems were created uh, to maintain the status quo. You know, I, I think you know police, and I say this, you know, not trying to be uh, uh, too controversial, but I say this because um, I, I do think there are police officers who are doing their job and you know try to um, trying their best, 
but I also know that the system is set up that they don't that there are so many people that um, are in the police force um, who who don't care and who um, don't have to care because the system is set up uh, where uh, you know people of historically marginalized groups are oftentimes unheard unvalued um, and uh, you know, people just m- might not actually see uh, what the, the actual um, issues are, and and, and it, people are comfortable with that. Um, and and you know, unrelated, we know about um, the problems of police, um, which is the uh, the increase of police violence, the um, how their biases might affect things like the uh, astronomical numbers of, of black people killed by the police who are unarmed and um, most of the time have not committed any crime. Um, and so, you know, there's so many problems with police. Um, and I think this is why we really have to reevaluate the system, um, if not dismantle the system, uh, so that people can really figure out what, what is actually working and what is actually serving uh, these communities who have historically uh, been underserved and if not overtly oppressed. Dealing with a rise in hate crimes and a rise in crime on the New York City subway system has become a priority for new mayor Eric Adams. Let me kick it off by introducing our mayor, Eric Adams. The mayor, with the governor and the head of the MTA by his side, announced a program aimed at delivering needed social services to homeless and others who have sought refuge from the pandemic in the underground system. Increased public safety is something Mayor Adams believes needs to be a part of the city's recovery. The subway system and our buses make New York what it is. And if they're not safe, if people don't feel safe, and if the numbers of crime are not reflective of who and what we want to be as a city, it's going to impact us. I say it over and over again, and in fact, many of you can finish the statement. But public safety and justice, they are the prerequisite to prosperity. I've said it for years, and I will continue not only to say it, but to make it happen. It must begin here in our subway system, and we are here to say it is going to start here. Subway riders are deeply concerned. We hear it all the time. I hear it every time I'm on the subway system. People tell me about their fear of using the system, and we're going to ensure that fear is not New York's reality. As for ways to battle hate crime specifically, CUNY's Kevin Nadal believes the law itself could use an overhaul. For example, of the two most prominent cases of crimes against Asian women, Christina Yuna Lee and Michelle Goh, neither has been classified as a hate crime. So, so that's the problem with hate crime law, is that it's, it's so contingent on whether or not there is uh, tangible evidence and doesn't realize um, that for most people we have biases that you know, are not spoken, are not written, um, and so it's not classifying um, you know, the, the crime as, uh, as being a hate crime. Um, but I do like your suggestion of, of looking at things as a whole, um, looking at a trend, looking at a pattern, um, and perhaps that might be something um, that people can see as being more um, motivated. Um, but I don't know that that would start stand at the court of law because of, you know, different perpetrators, different situations. Um, there will always be some other, like, explanation um, that people have, you know. Um, and, you know, it's, it's complicated, uh, but, but this is where we are. And um, we, you know, I think, again, I think if we really want to um, challenge hate crime law, we have to 
we have to look at what um, what is used to constitute whether or not um, a bias uh, is or a crime was biased. Um, and and one last thing I'll say about this that uh, you know I should have mentioned at the beginning is that who gets to determine that that whether or not it, it is biased. Um, it's usually the police officers who start off at the investigation, and then it's the district attorney who has um, the sole decision of whether or not they're going to um, prosecute the case. And if those two entities, uh, you know, say that there are no biases, um, then then it's not not considered a hate crime. Um, but are those people even trained uh, to understand what biases are? Are those people folks who have done training um, on understanding um, implicit bias or have re- read the research or studied the research thoroughly um, on implicit bias and how it might affect um, our decision making. Um, and then a last systemic thing is that a lot of uh, police and a lot of the district attorney's offices out there, um, they don't want to prosecute these cases uh, because it's a lot of work. So they feel overworked, they feel overwhelmed, and so sometimes they just want to just write off this case as being the bare minimum um, because that results in them having uh, to do less. So there's also a systemic issue of um, you know whether these systems are even effective um, and if they're at capacity, and if so, who suffers? Um, and, and so that's something that you know I just wanted to point out too. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I think we'll wrap up on this. I mean, the point you made that you, you used the term tangible evidence. I mean, that's yep. the basis of the criminal justice system. You know, without proof of it yep. being a hate crime, you can't and maybe you shouldn't be able to charge as a hate crime. So, is there a way to change the law? Do we need to change the law? or it's just complicated based on the circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I I think we can revisit the law to at least uh, consider it um, as as part of it. But, you know, what I'm I'm saying also is, like, you know, for it to even get into uh, the, for it to even be charged as a hate crime, you know, it means getting, you know, police officers, district attorney's offices, sometimes even medical examiners, um, to have that knowledge. And that's not even changing the law. That's just changing that system to be able to have some awareness um, of racial biases or you know other types of biases. Um, and then once that happens, then it goes to the court. Um, and then when it gets to court, um, you know, judges get to decide whether or not um, you know a, a charge is um, is valid or reasonable or whatever it might be. Um, and then you know, so it might not even make it that far, right? So I think um, you know, it's the existing processes that we have are so flawed. Um, that it's not even about changing the law right now. It's about changing every single step along the way um, to for, for for folks to really take into consideration, you know, what some of these other circumstances are. Um, and then on top of that, if we find that, that that isn't working, then, you know, the law can be officially changed. But it's like we we can't even say that the law isn't uh, working yet because there's so many people who just aren't even doing that first part um, of their job in order to, uh, to to even see the effectiveness of these things. Kevin, you've been so patient. This has really been an interesting conversation, and I thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I appreciate talking about these things all the time, and thank you so much for giving voice to you know these Asian-American women and, and others who just oftentimes their crimes get swept under the rug. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of these nuances today. 
880 In-Depth is our weekly deep dive into an important topic. The executive producers are Peter Haskell and Tim Schell. Subscribe so you don't miss a week and listen on demand on your time. Just search for WCBS 880 In-Depth wherever you get your audio. I'm Steve Scott. Thank you for listening. are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 